27 this morning. Acts chapter 27. Continuing our study through the book of Acts, a, a couple quick housekeeping announcements to make before we get going much further. Once again, everybody is welcome to join us back for the potluck after church, and we don't want to exclude anybody, so I hope you can all come back. And also a quick reminder, I was told to remind you, if you brought a dish, remember to take the dish home with you. Same thing with your kids. If you brought kids, remember to take your kids home with you. So just remember that in the back of your mind. So dish, kids, take home. Uh, also, I don't know if we got a chance to mention again this week, but I think it bears repeating. Last Saturday, uh, we had the car care over at Tom's and Deschler, and I believe they said there was 27 cars that went through. So a big thanks to all those that participated and helped out with that. What a wonderful blessing that is to the body of Christ. And, you know, concerning the shoeboxes, once again, just want to tell everybody thank you. What a wonderful ministry. I, I love the simplicity of this. You just fill a shoebox up so you get a chance to bless a child with Christmas, but most importantly, you get a chance to bless them with the gospel message. And it's just exciting to see where they were going. And I know Renee mentioned earlier, but I just want to reiterate too, as we're now into the Christmas season here, if you're interested in getting involved with the meals or the angel tree, if you or a family you know could be blessed by that. See me, see Rich, see Nancy, see one of us, and we'll point you in the right direction with that. So, Acts chapter 27. Let's do the smart thing and let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. We pray, as always, your spirit would teach. We would listen, guide, and direct in all ways and all things. We give you this teaching. We give you the world. We give you the nation. We give you the men and women serving in the military. We give you Jerusalem. They're all in your hands, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 27. This is quite the chapter, 44 verses long as we're moving through our study here in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of locations and a lot of places. So I just want to tell you this beforehand, a real quick recap. Paul was at Caesarea. Paul was at Caesarea waiting to go on trial. He's been waiting to go on trial now for two years. The Jews wanted to have the trial in Jerusalem. And the reason they wanted the trial in Jerusalem was they would kill Paul as he was traveling from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Paul realized what was going on, realized he was getting nowhere in this legal system, so he appealed to Rome. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to do that, so he appealed to Rome. So now he needs to travel from Caesarea to Rome. And that's what Acts 27 is. This is his boat trip from Caesarea to Rome. And it doesn't go good. Not to give away the ending, but it ends with a shipwreck at the end of chapter 27. But there are probably 15, 20 different names of islands and locations and towns that they stop at because they're showing you the path that he went. I was going to put a slide up with it or a PowerPoint. It's actually easier. If you have a study Bible, just look at the back of your Bible. There's probably a map back there that talks about Paul's trip to Rome. And as we go through these towns and cities here, you'll see all these different islands that they stay away from and all they move towards, etc. So keep that in the back of your mind. This is a chapter about Paul's trip from Caesarea to Rome to have trial now in Rome. Please do also note it's now written in the first person, which means Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is now traveling with Paul, so it's first person. Couple other things here. If you're wondering how many people are with him, we know at the end of the chapter it mentions there's 276 people on this boat. This is a mix of prisoners, sailors, soldiers, maybe some passengers. And they're starting this trip out in early fall, which is important to note because the weather is going to be contrary to them throughout this journey, which is going to cause problems. So just a little bit of background as we now jump into this. Acts 27, verse 1, it says, When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion 
of the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship at Adramatum, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristocrats of Macedonia, Thessalonica, was with us. Aristocrats mentioned there in verse 2 is a uh, traveling companion of Paul. He's mentioned about four or five times in the Bible, verse 3. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. We're in that rough sailing weather, so they're trying to stay near Cyprus to get away from the winds. Verse 5, when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lucia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board, changed ships. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty at Sindus, the wind would not permit us to proceed, so we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salom, Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So basically what's happening is as they're sailing here, the weather is against them, the wind is against them, and they stop at this place called Fair Havens. And they have to decide, do we stay here or we try to go to Rome? Basically the weather is against us, so do we stay at Fair Havens or we try to make it on to Rome? So this is the discussion, verse 9. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men... I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor is not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. So here's our point. Here's our first point of the lesson. They have to make this decision. So as they're trying to make this decision of do they stay here and winter there and wait till the weather's better or do they leave, we know from verse 9 that the fast was already over. That would be the Day of Atonement. So now we're into October. This is not good sailing weather on the sea for them. Now Paul, verse 10, says, I don't think we should do it. Now, what's Paul's background? He's a Pharisee. He's an educated Jew. He was a Roman citizen. He didn't really have a lot of background, you would think, in the sea. But you have to remember, Paul has taken numerous, numerous missionary trips and journeys through the sea. He actually knows what he's talking about. But the centurion talks to the helmsman, who talks to the owner of the ship. And then what happens in verse 12 is the majority decide, let's keep on sailing. Because it wasn't good to winter in this place. Now, why wasn't it good to winter there? It's called Fair Havens. Most people believe it wasn't good to winter there because it was a very small town. And they would have nothing to do for a few months. Phoenix had more entertainment. That's where they wanted to get to. So the majority decided, let's go. The centurion talks to the helmsman who talks to the owner. Paul's advice is basically ignored. Now, the phrase I really want to focus on here as we build on this is verse 12. This idea, the majority advised to set sail. The majority. Do you realize how many times in the Bible it is a bad example to follow the majority? Now, this is something that's kind of important. Because in the world we live in, we, and a lot of times our belief system, is going to be the minority. It really is. What we believe is right, what we believe is moral, what we believe is true, has really become the minority in the world today. And so we have to stop and realize, what do we do? What path do we take? What do we decide to listen to? Here's a great verse on this. You don't have to turn there. Exodus 23, verse 2. Exodus 23, verse 2. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Boy, think of that verse. You should not follow a crowd to do evil. Think about how many examples in the Bible where the majority was wrong and the minority was right. I just started making a list. Think of Noah. Eight people got saved. They were definitely a minority preparing for the flood. Think to Moses. How many times was his leadership questioned by the majority? But that's the one the Lord led. 
Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14, they come back from exploring the promised land, and there's 12 spies sent out. Ten of the spies said, we can't do this. We can't take the promised land. Joshua and Caleb said, guys, we can do this. They were the minority. They were ignored. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 took on 450 prophets of Baal. One prophet of God versus 450 prophets of Baal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the only three that would not bow down to the fiery furnace. We could go on and on and on. The minority took a stand for what was right, took a stand in the Lord against the majority. I'm just telling you right now, if you want to be a born-again, on-fire believer for Christ, as you go out to the world, as you go out to school, as you go out to the workplace, you're going to be the minority. You're going to be the minority when it comes to your belief system and your moral values. What are you going to do? It's tough. What are you going to do? And these are the decisions we need to stop and say, okay, Lord, am I going to take a stand for what's right? Am I going to take a stand for what's true? It may not be popular. It may not be the thing that people want to see or hear, but it's something that we need to do. What happens when the majority rules and takes the decision that's not right? Look at verse 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. They take off, and guess what happens? It worked. It worked pretty good. They had a soft wind, verse 13. It's looking pretty good, but verse 14. But not long after, a tenuous headwind arose, caught a Eurycladon, which is a northeastern type storm. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. This is what happens when the majority makes a decision that's not in line with what the biblical principles of what is right is. Verse 13. It usually starts out okay. Because the majority got what they want. It seems good. Verse 14, though, then you eventually run into a storm. And then verse 15, guess what? The storm's so bad that you just have to let the ship, let it drive. It means just let it coast. They couldn't stop this. They just had to go. How many times have we seen when the majority make a decision that is not in line with the Bible, it starts out well, it gets rough, and eventually it becomes a snowball effect. You can't stop it. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. This is exactly what happened. And now they're into the storm, verse 16. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff is a lifeboat. Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to the point, a lifeboat. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. Sirtis sands are a very shallow group of land. They can't control this ship. They're going towards the sand, so they throw the sail up, hoping the wind takes them some other place. Verse 18, because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now they're throwing stuff overboard just to survive. Verse 20, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They accept the fact this is the end. Now... What would be the best advice that someone could give at this time? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 21. After a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Best advice you can give is, I told you so. That's the best advice you can give, you know? So if you're an I told you so person, and you like to tell people I told you so, first off, I don't like you. Second off, you do have biblical background now to say this. So when somebody says, I hate it when you say I told you so, you can say, hey, Apostle Paul, Acts 27, 21, I told you so. What's the problem with I told you so? And the problem is you're just trying to rub your point in. The problem is you're just trying to say, look, I was right. See, I was right. Nothing else good comes out of that point other than you feel good that you were proven even though you're all still in a horrible spot. This is what I like about Paul. He does start out with verse 21. 
I told you so. But then verse 22, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for as I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Wonderful passage here. Let's break this down. Verse 21, I told you so. We already covered that. But he now gives them hope. Verse 22, take heart. Take heart, verse 22. Take courage. Be strong. I don't have a problem with somebody coming up to me and giving me a problem as long as they help give me a solution. I really don't like when someone comes up and usually says something like this, Pastor, you need to fix that. Pastor, that's wrong. Okay, what do you want me to do about it? I don't know. Well, how about you pray with me? How about you fast with me? How about you search the scriptures with me? Let's come up with a solution together. I don't have a problem with Paul coming up and saying in verse 21, I told you so, because then he says, here's our answer. He's now trying to help, not just pick. So I told you so, verse 21, but verse 22, take heart, take courage. Verse 23, for there stood by me this night an angel of God, I love this phrase, to whom I belong. To whom I belong. You've got a good old King James out there that says, Whose I am. Paul says, I am God's child. God's going to take care of me. That's who I belong to is the Lord. So in the middle of the storm, Paul is saying, I'm God's child. He's going to take care of me. Why is God going to take care of him? Because way back in Acts 23, 11, what did God promise Paul? That you're going to go to Rome. He says, you're going to go to Rome and get a chance to witness for me there. He didn't say, Paul, you're going to die in a shipwreck on the way to Rome. He says, you're going to get there. Paul knew that the Lord promised him he was going to go to Rome. Paul knew as a child of God, God's taking care of him. That was a promise. Remember, promises of God have no expiration date. They don't. They don't expire. So if God told Paul, you're going to go to Rome, he's going to get there, even though the storm is going on. So the God to whom I belong... Verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. Now, we have to make this point. We've made this point before. If God is telling Paul, do not be afraid, why is he saying that? Because obviously Paul was afraid. You wouldn't tell somebody to not be afraid if they're not afraid. As I'm shaking your hand today as you leave, if I say, hey, you going to the potluck? And you say, yeah. And I say, hey, don't be afraid back there, okay? That's, first off, that's kind of creepy. Number two, what's there to be afraid about? Now, if you come up to me and say, hey, James, I got a huge doctor's appointment this week. I'm getting test results back. And I say, hey, don't be afraid. There's a context there. Now you understand there's something to be concerned about. So by God telling Paul to not be afraid, what's it mean in verse 24? Paul was battling fear. Paul's human. He knew the promises of God. He knew the Lord was going to be with him. He knew he belonged to him. But this silly human emotion of fear. Oh, man. You realize fear is not rational. You you, you can't rationalize fear. One of my boys right now is really struggling with this fear of being away from Dawn and I. I mean, it's almost a paralyzing type fear. So we sit down, we do the verses of do not be afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We go through all of it and we say, hey, now listen, we're right here. We're right in this other room. If we're at church, hey, I'm in the sanctuary. You're back there. You're fine. Doesn't get it. So I asked him, I said, what are you afraid of? Well, I mean, what are you afraid is going to happen? He said, I'm afraid you're going to leave me. I said, have I ever left you before? He goes, no. I said, you belong to me. 
not going to leave you. And I keep thinking back to this point with Paul. Paul says, I belong to God. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And what does he tell the rest of us? Verse 25, therefore take heart, men. And I love this phrase. Therefore take heart, men. Why? Verse 25, for I believe God. See, it's one thing for you to realize you belong to God. It's one thing for you to realize that God says, not be afraid. But you have to take this and you have to say, verse 25, I believe it. You have to personalize this. That God said, I am His. If you're a child of God here this morning and you are born again, you are His. He says, do not be afraid. He says, take heart. But verse 25, you have to believe it. Not just repeat it. Not just think it in your head, but you have to believe that as a child of God, He's going to take care of me. So therefore, I will not walk in fear. So what's going to happen, verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. What island? Not revealed. Don't know yet. So you know what this means? God's telling you, take heart, don't be afraid. You belong to me, but He's also not giving you the full picture quite yet. Wouldn't it be great to see if I was one of these sailors, I would say, okay, Paul, I believe you, verse 26. What, what island are we running aground on? Well, he hasn't revealed that yet. There's still this element of faith. So right now, you may be going through a difficult time. Take heart. Do not be afraid. If you're saved here this morning, you belong to God. He may not reveal all the details yet, but he says, I still have you. What happens next? Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sent they were drawing near some land. 14th night. Verse 28, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Depending on your translations, about 120 feet, 90 feet deep. Verse 29, then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Remember I said, remember the lifeboat? How's this for logic? In the middle of a storm, when you think you're going to sink, let's cut the lifeboat and let it go. That makes no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. These sailors are trying to utilize the lifeboat. That's what it is, a lifeboat. And Paul's great words of wisdom is cut the lifeboat and let it go. Think about that for a second. Cut the lifeboat and let it go. Do you realize the Lord still does the same thing to you and I today? He tells you to cut the lifeboat and trust Him. Now, what is your lifeboat? Now, everybody's got a different lifeboat. And He's telling you don't trust in that lifeboat. For some of you, you're trusting in something that gives you peace of mind rather than the Lord. And you need to figure out what that lifeboat is and say, I don't want that anymore. Now, this is not a point to take and take it impractically. I don't mean it that way in any way whatsoever. Don't go home and not wear your seatbelt because your seatbelt's your lifeboat. I'm not saying that. Buckle up for safety. Real quick story. There's no point to this, but Rich and I do a lot of uh, travels together. And Rich and I are really not a good team. I don't understand. We're a good team, but we just shouldn't be together. So Rich and I are going someplace and we were going to go do a visit. So I pull up into Richard's house and I get out of my car. He pulls up and he's got a trailer in the back of his van. And he says, he gets ready to get in my car. I said, you can't get in my car. And he goes, why? And I said, my, my front seatbelt doesn't work. I, for the last three months, have buckled my seatbelt into the passenger seatbelt. 
And yes, I've called. It's on back order. Please don't think I'm an idiot. Yes, I know. I need to get it fixed. So Richard said, well, we can't take mine because I got the trailer hooked up. I said, I only got one seatbelt in the front. He goes, I don't care. I said, okay. So we get in. Now, remember, my seatbelt buckles into the passenger seatbelt. Okay? Remember that. We get in. Richard buckles up. <laughs> what, what are you doing? My, well, he says you can still buckle. My seatbelt does not work. I have to buckle into the other seatbelt to make it work. So this, we're just cutting across Deschler. This is classic Rich. Rich, is it Rich in here today? Okay, he's not here. Good. Um, I hope we're not recording this. But this is classic Rich. We're just going from one side of Deschler to the other side. He goes, oh, we're not going that far. Don't worry. Now, that's not a prophetic statement. That's just Richard living in Richard world that just thinks nothing's going to happen. So he buckles up. I drive across Deschler without my seatbelt. And you know what Richard does the whole way? He complains about my seatbelt dinging. I told him my seatbelt doesn't work. No spiritual point to sharing that. So sometimes you've got to cut the lifeboat, though. Now, like I said, there's a practicality to seatbelts and locking your door. I'm not saying things like that. What is a lifeboat? A lifeboat is something you're holding on to instead of trusting the Lord. A lifeboat is something you're holding on to to give you some pleasure, to give you some peace of mind, or just the what if. Now, let's just get honest with each other because lifeboats are very personal. I remember one time talking to the alcoholic that kept beer in the bottom of the fridge. Why? In case I ever wanted to cook with it. No. Cut the lifeboat. The lifeboat is those people that find the old boyfriends and girlfriends on Facebook and just befriend them just to see what's going on, and their marriage is not safe. No, it's, it's lifeboat is saying, I'm just going to keep this number just in case I ever need to call this person. No, that's not safe. Those are lifeboats we're holding on to to give us some peace of mind. And we've got to be careful with those things. Sometimes you need to cut those connections, you need to cut those relationships, because what happens is it's just in case it doesn't work out. I don't know how many times I've heard people tell me, going through a difficult marriage, well, if this doesn't work out, I already got this planned. Now, be careful there. Where the mind goes, the body will follow. And you've got to be careful about those type of things. That's why sometimes the Lord, and each situation is unique, each situation is unique, that's why the Lord is saying, cut the lifeboat. Because if they want to trust the Lord's going to get them through this storm, they can't keep eyeing this lifeboat, saying, okay, we can still jump in here in case things go bad. God says, cut the lifeboat. So the only thing you have to trust is me and me alone. That's huge. What do you think these experienced seasoned sailors thought? Once again, the Pharisee Jewish man that was not a sailor, remember he's still a prisoner at this time, is telling them, cut the lifeboat. That's a pretty big statement. So they did. Now what happens? Verse 33, And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You have waited and continued without food, eating nothing. Once again, how bad does this storm have to have been that these seasoned sailors can't even eat? They can't even eat. It's so seasick. It's so awful that they've gone now days, maybe even weeks, without eating. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take nourishment for this, for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. A couple points on this. First off, verse 35. They stopped, broke bread, and gave thanks in the middle of a life-threatening storm. Do you think about that? There's always a time to give thanks. 
We've made this point out here many times. Forgive me for the repetition. We as a church, and I don't mean harvest, I mean the church, the body of Christ, has reached a point where we completely misunderstand worship. We come in and we look at worship as something to entertain us. We look at the songs that we want to hear. And then we look at worship as something that God has earned throughout the week. We completely misunderstand that the reason we worship God is just because He's God. So in the middle of the storm, somebody had to say, what are we giving thanks for? You're giving thanks just because God is God. And I don't know how many times I've talked to people on the phone, and I talk to them about having a heart of worship, and a heart of thanks, and a heart of praise, and I usually hear something like this, what do I have to be thankful for? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The Holy Spirit has chosen to take up residence in your life. You have grace, you have mercy, and you have heaven awaiting you. Those are some pretty good things to be thankful for. But it's a mindset you have to have. If you come in with this mindset of worship, or anything with worship or the Lord, saying, entertain me, or you come in with this mindset of, Lord, you've earned my praise this week because it was a good week, you're completely misunderstanding thanks and praise. They are thanking God, verse 35, just because God is God. So, can you praise God in the middle of that storm? Can you thank God in the middle of the storm? What happens when you do that, verse 36? You're encouraged. I tell you, it it works. It completely works. And I know that when you're in the middle of a darkness, a discouragement, and a depression, and somebody says to you, hey, how's that time of worship going? That's the last thing you're thinking about. I just want to tell you this, though. It works. When you're going through that darkness of life, and you take some time and go read the Psalms, or get in the Word, or put on some praise and worship, it completely changes your perspective. Because it gets your eyes off the situation and on your Savior. Right now, the situation is depressing. There's a storm. They're going to sink. They have no lifeboats. They're going to wreck. But when they get their eyes back on the Lord, verse 36, they're encouraged. They're encouraged. Number two, why would they want to eat? I mean, I know what Paul says. You've ate nothing and you need this, verse 34, nourishment. I'm sure they didn't feel like it. I'm sure they didn't feel like it. I mentioned to you before how much I hate flying absolutely hate flying. Hate it. And usually somebody comes up to me and says something like, are you afraid of crashing or a fear of flying? And I do have a fear of flying. I'm not afraid of the plane crashing. I know where I go when I die. I have a fear of throwing up on the plane. That's what I have a fear of. I hate the way it makes me feel. So when Dawn and I, before we had kids, we, we flew a lot and did a lot of things. And I remember Dawn loves it. It's like this huge roller coaster to her. I hate it. So Dawn would always try these things. Like, why don't you look out the window while we take off? That's the stupidest thing she could have ever told me. Or it's like, you need to have some food in your stomach. No, no. So I understand here this idea of eat. No, I'm not eating. Two weeks on this boat? No, just no. What do we do as parents when our kids are sick? You need to drink something. You need to eat something. Force fluids, right? Now, let's take that practical point and let's make a spiritual point out of that. I've heard a pastor say this, and this is so true. A lot of times when we're going through a tough time spiritually, what do we feel like? Well, we don't feel like being in the Word. We don't feel like praying. We don't feel like serving. We don't feel like worship. We don't feel like going to church. What do we feel like doing? We feel like cuddling up in some ball on the couch at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That's not going to do any good. Just as we need to force fluids and force food sometimes when we're sick, when we're spiritually sick, we need to force that time in the Word of God. We do. And it's amazing how when you stop and you say, I'm going to go spend that time in the Word, even though I don't feel like it, you walk away blessed and encouraged. Because it gets your mind off what's wrong and gets your eyes on what's right, Christ. 
When you say, you know what, I don't even feel like praying, but I'm still going to do it. God blesses that. It really does. Take nourishment. This is for what? Verse 34, your survival. If you're spiritually struggling today, and it was a struggle to even get here, you don't know the last time you spent any time in real prayer with the Lord. You don't know the last time you really even had that time in the Word. Go home today and do it. Take it. Force it in a good way, and you'll see that it comes blessed. Trust the Lord can work at that. Verse 36, they're all encouraged. Verse 37, and all we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Please note in verse 38, we have this group of prisoners, we have this group of soldiers and sailors, but there's also produce, verse 38. Somebody was making their money off this trip. It's all lost. But this is where you have to remember, from that worldly perspective, it's all lost. But from a spiritual perspective, they're all saved, verse 39. When it was a day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. Here's their idea. We're just going to crash into the beach. Hope we survive. Verse 40. They let go the anchors and let them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Remember Roman rule and law. If you're a Roman soldier and your prisoner escapes, you have to take that punishment that they were supposed to get. So what was the easier thing to do? Let's kill all the prisoners, because if we lose them, we're in trouble. Verse 43, But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on board, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. What a mishmash group of people. A shipwreck lands them on this beach, a mix of prisoners, sailors, soldiers, passengers. And now they're all on this island. Maybe you don't get it, maybe you don't see it, but I tell you, every time I read this, I think, is that not a picture of the body of Christ? We're a mix of prisoners, sailors, soldiers, passengers. We all had a shipwreck that happened in our life that made us need the Lord, and we crash-landed on this beach. It's like this weird Gilligan's Island thing. And now we're all together until Jesus returns. What a strange group of people. I mean, can't you imagine as this goes on, on their island Malta for, for this long, long time. They're on there for three months. Eventually... The soldiers probably started hanging out with the passengers, which hung out with the prisoners, which hung out with the sailors. That's kind of what Christ does. We all go through a shipwreck, and we all end up on the same beach, and we say, now we just wait to be rescued through Christ. And it's, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but we're this group that comes together. Here's my last point I want to make. Can you go with me to Daniel 3? Daniel 3. Let's just go through some of the stuff we said. One of the first points we said is that we are going to be in the minority. And to take a stand means taking a stand against the majority, just as we talked about there in verse 12. We also realized Paul's I told you so moment, but also included, take heart, be of good carriage, do not be afraid, and that he belongs to God. Remember that when you're going through the storms of life. You belong to the Lord, take heart, be of good courage. Do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. Remember that. Remember, Paul was told he would make it to Rome. God promised that. The promises of God have no expiration date. 
Remember Paul giving praise to God in the middle of the storm, thanking him in the middle of the storm. It reminds me of what Job wrote in Job 13. Remember what Job said? He said, though he slay me, I will still trust in him. Think about that. Job is basically saying, my life has been ripped from me. The only thing I have is the Lord. If the Lord wants to take my life, that's fine. I will still trust him. Because that's your foundation. What I want to finish with here is Daniel 3. We mentioned examples earlier about the minority versus the majority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 kind of bring all these points together. Real quick recap. I'm sure a lot of you remember from Sunday school. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, Babylon, made up this huge gold statue. And basically, when the music starts, everybody worship it. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't want to worship it. Three guys. Three guys about how many rulers and leaders? How many hundreds, if not how many thousands? I remember one time seeing a picture of what an artist thought this looked like. And it's an amazing uh, picture. You have this statue in the background. You have literally these hundreds, if not thousands of people bowing. And there's just three guys standing right in the middle of it. What to take a stand? Well, what happens is they do it. They don't bow. They stand. Somebody comes and tattles on them saying, Nebuchadnezzar, look what's going on. Verse 13 of Daniel 3. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Good, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God, little g, who will deliver you from my hands? Basically, he says, guys, I'm giving you one more opportunity. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Basically, you know what we're going to say. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Basically saying, we trust the Lord. But what I like is verse 18. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Basically, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, listen, we're not going to bow. We're going to take a stand. God's able to deliver us, verse 17. But if he chooses not to deliver us in verse 18, we're still not going to worship you. See, that's the thing. We always expect these miraculous solutions. And sometimes a miraculous solution is, as the minority, we still take a stand and we suffer through it, but we suffer for the kingdom of the Lord. I've shared with you before that uh, one of the books that my boys and I like to read is that Fox's Book of Martyrs. And as we first started reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, the boys expected it to be like almost every other Christian movie or story you read. The people are, are punished, the people are captured, and there's this miraculous escape. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. They don't escape. And as you read through these, and you read through these people, it took a stand to the end. Oh my Lord, how weak am I? I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse, seven, verse 16 we don't even have to talk to you about this. You know, we're not going to bow. Verse 17, God can save us. Verse 18, if he chooses not to, we're still not going to bow. What an amazing point. No matter what happens, we're not going to succumb to the will of the majority. We're not. We're going to take a stand for what is right, and we're going to do what is right. And we know what happens. Verse 25, the Son of God shows up in the fiery furnace and keeps them safe. Amen to that. But what we see here in Acts 27 is we see somebody that is in the minority that's taking a stand. 
Be of good heart. Be of good cheer. Don't give up. But do you know what happens? The ship still wrecks. But sometimes it's in those shipwreck moments of life that God says, I'm still going to use this. And guess what happens on the island of Malta in chapter 28? Paul has this amazing ministry for three months because the ship wrecked. Sometimes you have a shipwreck moment in your life and you're thinking, Lord, why? Sometimes you need to realize there's more going on behind the scenes than what you see and realize. And there may be a ministry opportunity that comes out of that. It comes simply down to what Paul said. Take heart. Do not be afraid. You belong to God. If you're a born-again servant of Jesus Christ today, that is true. And you belong to Him. He'll see you through whatever you're struggling with. Marv, if we come forward for the final song. Once again, you're welcome to stick around for the meal. I hope you can. Hope you'll be blessed by that. Don't forget to pick up your dishes and your kids on the way out. Let's give it over here to Marv for the final song. Then we'll close you out with a word of prayer. Marv, it's all yours.